You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Please be seated. Good morning. Great to join you and worship together. I'm so glad uh, you've made a point to be here. And like we always say, we don't think you're here by accident. We think the Lord has something for me today, something for you today. And to start off, I just want to add my invitation to Adams about Discover Bethel. Hey, if you don't have a church home, please come. We want to know you. And we want to be able to, one of the funnest things we get to do is get to talk to people about this beautiful thing that God created called his, called his church. And so we would love for you to join us, but we do need you to sign up today uh, because it is coming up on Wednesday night. Well, that's it. Let's get our Bibles out. Uh, you can open them up or unlock them or whatever you do and turn to Joshua chapter 6, uh, one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. We probably all of us learned about this chapter as w- when we were kids, but uh, there's a few more surprising things in there I think we'll find this week. Let's review real quick. So Joshua has been all about how do we walk in what God has for us, what he's promised, what he said will happen. We've found out so far, number one, we need a leader. And so we found out God appointed this Joshua, and he would be the one to lead his people into the promised land. And we've said Joshua is a uh, symbol for Jesus. In fact, they have the same name, the same Hebrew name. So the, the book is actually named Jesus. And what God is doing here is he's helping us recognize the greater Joshua when he comes. We found out we have to put feet to our faith. And so God told him, every place your foot treads, that's what I've given to you. And so what happens, the way this thing deal works is we, God makes promises, but our belief in those promises causes our little feet to move and get going. Last week we talked about consecration, that if it's all from him, that means it's all for him. And we met the commander of the Lord's army who said, I'm not joining your army, but I'd love for you to join mine. And that's where we left off last week. Finally, we've found out the power of his presence in our life. And so one of the most famous verses we found in chapter 1, be courageous, be strong and courageous. And God tells them there is one reason you can be strong and courageous, because I'm with you. My presence is what changes everything. But you know, if you walk this walk of faith long enough, eventually you'll face an impossible obstacle. Something you can't overcome on your own. And when you face impossible obstacles, you will very, very quickly find out that God's ways are not your ways. Or your neighbor's ways. Or your BFF ways. Or even the way you were raised. See, almost everyone in the world, and what makes common sense to us, we, we say, okay, here's how you overcome impossible obstacles. You fight for it. And we've got all kind of advice on how to do that. You know, you need the right strategy. You need the right partners. You need enough toughness. You need grit. You've heard the advice. You know, don't take no for an answer. Look inside yourself. Adapt and overcome. But what we'll find out today is when you walk with the Lord, when you walk in his promises, you don't fight for victory. It's like this. So I'm, I'm a big college football fan. I love Football season, I love college football. You guys have no idea how much uh, self-control it takes to not just make every illustration about college football, okay? So I practice that a lot, but today we're going to use one. We're going to use college football, okay? So I experience victories, football victories, very differently in the fall versus in the summer. So 
Right now it's the fall. I'm an LSU fan, okay? Uh, every game with LSU is a wild ride, even when we win. So we'll, we'll look amazing. You know, we'll be winning. We got, you know, great athletes. We're looking great. And then we do something stupid. So we fumble the ball, we drop some passes, we have some penalties, and this is when I get distraught. I start getting really worried, you know, I start thinking, oh man, we're terrible. I start shouting at the TV all the things that we should be doing, you know, like as if I know better, or they could even hear me, they can't, but I'm still yelling, here's what we do, and, and it's all, because deep down so much, I want the Tigers to fight harder for victory. But in the summer, then the summer comes, and y'all, the summer... I think of as like the dark night of the soul for sports. There's, just, just, it's, there's not a lot of good sports on. Maybe you, your favorite sport is summer sport. I'm sorry. So what I'll do sometimes is I'll go back and I'll watch some of our old victories from the previous fall. I know it's sad. Save your comments. Okay? My wife agrees with you. It's sad. We're all on the same page. It's sad. But I do it. Okay? So I'll go back and I'll watch some of these games that we won and when I, when I watch these and, and we do something stupid and we fumble and we drop the ball, and I don't, I don't get all worked up about it. I don't get distraught. I don't yell at the TV. I don't start thinking of all the strategies that we need to do different to fight for victory. Why? Because I already know how the game ends. I already know we won. And so in the summer when I'm watching the game, I'm not watching it for victory. I'm watching it from victory. Because I already know how it ends. Chapter 6, the Israelites face an impossible obstacle called the walls of Jericho. But God says, hey, here's how this is going to work. To, to overcome this obstacle, I don't need you to fight for this victory. Because you have my promises. You have my presence. You've consecrated yourself to me. And so because of that, you are not fighting for victory. You are fighting from victory. Because you already know how it ends. That's our big idea today. We fight from victory, not for victory. We fight from victory, not for victory. So let's look at Jericho 6, verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given you Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. When they make that long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So God starts off assuring them of victory. He tells them how the game's going to end. He says, I have given you this city. And the verb there, you notice it is in the perfect tense. It describes a completed action before the action's taken place. That makes no sense. It's like me saying right up the, off the bat, I have preached a short sermon. You may be hopeful. I may intend to do it, but it remains to be seen, right? Hadn't happened yet. Well, it's totally different with God. This is God's total and complete sovereignty. Nothing will stop his plans. And just because we haven't experienced it yet doesn't make it any less certain. So he can tell them, I know how how the thing ends. I've given it to you. And notice he doesn't say, you will win. 
He says, I have given. So he isn't just future telling, he is gift giving. So he, he, he's saying, this battle, it's not really a battle, it's a gift. You are fighting from victory. And then in verse 3 through 5, he lays out the plan. And this is what I'm talking about. It turned out you do things very, very differently when you're fighting from victory than for victory. Because God gives them the worst battle plan ever. Worst plan to conquer a city that's ever been given. He says, okay, I want, so you can go up in front of them. And I want you to walk and turn left until you get back to where you started. This is like NASCAR. We'll do seven days of NASCAR, going in a circle, and then blow a trumpet, shout, and the battle plan. You know, I like to think the Israelites were a lot like us. And I just have to imagine that different types of reactions from the different types of people in Israel as this plan unfolded. You know, there's probably some go-getters there. You know, they're, they're doers, they're conquerors, and, um, you know, first day, they're, they're on board, maybe. So they're walking around, they're looking for the weaknesses in the wall. You know, where can we get in? Okay, is that, what, is that a screen door? I'm going to go in there. They're looking for the weakest of the Canaanites. I can take that dude, I can take that dude. They're strategizing, maybe for the first day. But y'all, I got to think by the second day, the third day, the fourth day, they're thinking, this isn't working. God must need my help. I got to do something. I got to start building some ladders. I got to start throwing some rocks. We, God needs my help. I mean, I'm sure he'd do it eventually, but they're just making fun of us now. It's probably some very logical people in the group, and they hated this plan. I'm very logical. I would have hated this plan. The best, they would have said, the best tool any army has is what? The element of surprise. Well, let's just totally ruin that for seven days, how about? And let's just give them all a, a clear uh, picture, a clear sight of how many people we have, how few weapons that we have, um, our locations. This is dumb. You know, there's probably some in there just prone to fear. And I have to think for them, every day, every lap around, there's another chance to see how big the obstacles are, how impenetrable the walls are. Each day, circling, only more and more aware and afraid of the challenges. You know, and then I thought there's probably some people, the hardest part of it was just when God told them they couldn't talk for seven days. God tells them that in verse 10, no talking, be quiet. And their spouse probably loved that plan, but they, that was very hard for them, okay? And when you look at the details in light of the law that God had given them, so many things are totally out of place, y'all. But each thing, each detail is designed by God to tell them that God is doing this, that the victory is a gift. So you got the priests. Now, priests are not supposed to fight in battle, but here they're leading the way. The ark, you're not supposed to take the ark into battle. They're going to try this in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. They'll take the ark into battle. And guess what? They lose and the ark gets kidnapped. It goes terribly wrong. We've talked about the ark before. It is all over the place. It is the symbol of God's presence. And it is mentioned 10 more times just in this chapter. It's, it's the most prominent thing in the chapter. And it symbolized God's presence with them. And he tells them to place his presence at the center of the procession. 
So what's, what's he saying to there, them there? He's saying, this isn't a battle for you to fight. You are simply to put my presence in the center so I can dwell with you and you can dwell with me. Did you hear that? God is far more interested in you keeping his presence in the center of your life than he is you going out with guns blazing trying to win a battle that you can't win. The trumpets. Guys, these are the wrong trumpets. So in battle, they were supposed to blow silver trumpets, but we're told these are ram's horns. Well, ram's horns, so silver horns are the trumpets of battle. Ram's horns are the horns of worship and of sacrifice. And so they would use these in processions and offerings and celebrations of past victories, of things that God had already done. You can read about it in Numbers 10, several other places. And when they would blow these trumpets, it was a, another symbol of God's presence and his pleasure with them, his, his acceptance of their offering. So what's God saying to them there? He's saying, hey, guys, this isn't a battle as much as it is worship. That's what this is. This is worship of the God who has already won the battle. And then he tells them to go around for seven days. So what do you think of when you hear seven days? Same thing they thought of, the Sabbath. God created for six days. On seventh day, he rested on the Sabbath. Well, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But here, you're certainly not supposed to walk long distances. So here, not only are they going to walk on the Sabbath, they're going to do the most walking. That's the day they're going to walk seven laps around. So what's he trying to tell them there? I, I thought about this idea of Sabbath and rest this week. And I think, you know, we, we have a completely dysfunctional view of rest. What rest is for me and for many of us is, you know, we, we think, okay, we make ourselves frantic for a while, we go crazy, and then rest is either being entertained or going comatose for a while or, you know, drinking a drink with a little umbrella in it, and that's rest. Well, y'all, the Sabbath in the Bible, it's, it's not a symbol of laziness. It's a symbol of completion. We can rest because God has completed his work. So six days he creates, it's all perfect, and he rests. There's nothing more to be done. And so God is telling them, listen, Sabbath rest is being in my presence and having faith in my completed work. That is biblical rest. And so you can have rest in the midst of the battle. Rest comes in fighting from victory, not for victory. And then again, he tells them the command, verse 10, don't speak. No one talking. No trash talk. There's no brave heart, motivational speech. Why? What's up with that? What's God telling them there? You know, I think, I think God is trying to stress as much as he possibly can. This really isn't about you even a little bit. I do not need your help. Don't even say a word. I'll do it all. And so the message of the whole battle plan is this isn't a battle. This is worship. This is my presence going with you. You are not fighting. You are resting. This is walking in what God has already promised. And so then in verse 6 through 19, the people literally walk by faith. And so you can go read verse 6 through 19. We're not going to read it together because it's very repetitive. And you'll go read it and you'll read something. You'll think, I feel like I just read that. And that's because you just read that. There's this purposeful pattern of repetition. God tells Joshua. Joshua tells the people exactly what God told them. And then the people do exactly what Joshua told them. 
See, through this pattern, the, the author is telling us how the walls of Jericho fell. There's all kinds of theories out there. So some people think, you know, maybe there was an earthquake at just that right time, and that made the walls fall down. There's one theory out there that the shouting and the trumpets created, you know, just the perfect uh, vibration and everything to make the walls come down. But the Bible actually tells us what made the walls of Jericho fall. Hebrews 11.30 says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith. That's what made them fall So overcoming that impossible obstacle, y'all, it doesn't require any special skill from anyone. There's no special weapons. There's no surprise natural disaster. In fact, they didn't even need some impressive amount of endurance. That walking they did, it was actually a very short distance. So Jericho at the time was probably about 10 acres total. That would have meant it was only about a half mile to three-quarter of a mile of a lap around Jericho. So it took them 20 minutes. That's it. Only one thing was required for those walls to fall. Faith. That's all they had to have was faith. So we read the story and we ask ourselves, did the people have faith? Did they believe God when he said, I have given you Jericho? We have to say a resounding yes. Yes, they had faith. But how do we know? How do we know they had faith? What's the evidence the text gives us for their faith? I mean, we don't get any words from them. No one makes a hashtag for their social media. They don't make t-shirts. I'm pretty sure they didn't even listen to Christian radio. So how do we know they had faith? They were obedient. Their feet showed their faith. And because of their faith, they... In God, they walked in two ways. And I think this is instructive for us. They walked according to his word. They did everything God said, even if it didn't make sense to them. Secondly, they walked with God at the center. That ark was at the center. It it showed that God is like the sun in the solar system. Everything revolves around him. You remember the commander of the Lord's army from last week. He said, I'm not joining your army, but you can join my army. The question isn't, am I with you? The question is, are you with me? You know, many times when we face impossible obstacles, we want to enlist God into our army. We want to kind of make him a department head of our life. And so we go to face this battle and we say, okay, God, will you be my secretary of defense? But I'm still the president. I'm still in charge. That's fighting for victory, not from victory. Fighting from victory looks like living according to his word with him at the center of our lives, totally in charge. That's what it looks like to live from victory. Now, if this victory comes out of faith, what comes in the absence of faith? And this is where we get to the part that I didn't learn about about in vacation Bible school. There's another option on the table. And that option is judgment. So let's skip ahead to verse 20. It says, So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. That feels bad. These verses, they remind us there's two options. Two options for everybody. There is faith 
or judgment. And here he, he introduces a concept that we're going to see several times throughout this book, the concept of the ban. The Hebrew word is harem. It means devoted. Devoted to what? Devoted to destruction. Every living thing must be destroyed. You know, we talked, we've talked about consecration. Consecration is a big deal in Joshua. God is saying, you will be devoted to something. You will either be devoted to me or you will be devoted to judgment. And listen, men and women, this is supposed to be sobering. It's supposed to be. You know, the ban, this ban, it is the reason some people give for why they will not believe the Bible, why they will not believe God. They say, I can't believe in a God who would do that. And I think if we're honest, many of us, even who believe, many Christians, it makes us really uncomfortable. You know, we, we read the first part of chapter 6 with a highlighter, but we'd like to read the last part with some scissors and just cut that part out. I don't like that part. Because it doesn't fit our picture of a nice God. But I want to pose a question. Could it be, could it be that the problem isn't with God, but that we take sin too lightly? See, first I want us to be clear on what the message of the Bible is. Now, a lot of times we get busy disagreeing with the Bible before we even understand what it's saying. So let, let's be clear on what it's saying before we decide if we agree or disagree not. Listen, this is not the plundering of an out-of-control army. This is not the violent outburst of an angry God. This is just judgment for sin. That's how the Bible portrays it. God is showing us here. He will one day put an end to all the injustice in the world, to all the evil in the world. Our problem is a little of that injustice, a little of that evil that we want God to stamp out out there, a little of, of it's in us too. Similar to Noah. So, Remember the days of Noah, Genesis 6. So we're six chapters in to the history of the world. Okay, we're not very far. And it tells us man's heart is always evil all the time. That's all that's coming out of man's heart is evil. And so God says you know, the only way to stop this evil and this suffering from multiplying over and over and over again is if we've got to hit the reset button. I've got to put an end to it. You know, these Canaanites, sometimes we, we kind of get this impression, hey, these are just good people trying their best, you know, make a living, and then God just smites them. Inside of this city are things like child sacrifice, murder, the worst use and abuse of people are a daily occurrence. And so if we're honest, we have to ask ourselves, how long should a just God let that go on? We know he's been very patient with these people, actually. They show up previously in Genesis 15 when God first appears to Abraham. It's as if he knows Abraham is going to be like, but God, what about these? I mean, this is really bad. What about them? And he tells Abraham, don't destroy these people yet. He says, their sin is not yet full. He, he, he's saying, I haven't totally given up on them yet. It's not time yet. And so we're several hundred years after that. And so several hundred years of patience Man, they've only produced more and more sin. Things have only gotten worse, just like the days of Noah. So judgment day has come for these people. But you know what also? The Bible also tells us every single righteous person is spared. Every single one of them. This is the lesson from Sodom in Genesis. Abraham starts bargaining with God. And his number goes down and down and down. Eventually we figure out if you take all the righteous people, you add them all together, you get a sum total of zero. None. 
Also, it's easy to think, you know, maybe if they just had more information, maybe if they just knew better, then, you know, then they would do better. I think this was part of the purpose of the seven days. God gave them seven days to repent as Israel marched around that city and did not attack. Every day, another chance. And you know, we know from the text already, they believed in God. They believed all that he had done to get the Israelites there. They knew God was powerful. They knew what God had done. And there they stood with seven second chances every day to come out from behind those walls and say, I want to join God's team. I repent. But they won't. They continue in defiance and in rebellion. They continue to shake their fist at God even when he's right in front of their face. There's a message in here. The Bible's showing us something. It is showing us, listen, the walls of Jericho are nothing compared to the walls the human heart puts up to keep God out. So the commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, I think he put it best. He says, it's not nice, but it's just. It's not nice, but it is just. But I still have to ask myself, you know, what, but what would have happened? What, what, what would God have done if one person did repent? Well, we know what he would have done because one did. Let's pick it up in verse 25. It says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The text is telling us, men and women, there is salvation in the midst of judgment. You know, it hit me this week. So we met Rahab in chapter 3. It hit me this week. So back in chapter 3, why send the spies into Jericho ahead of them? I mean, I mean, especially if God knew this is how we're going to conquer them. I mean, if God knew this is how the battle would be won, why the need for spies? I mean, there's no military intelligence gained. There's no military intelligence needed. If all we're going to do is walk and turn left... Why do we need spies? It's one reason, or better said, one person, Rahab. God sent those spies for Rahab. God knew there was one person who has put her faith in me. There is one who believes, and she has called out to me. So Israel, you guys can hold on for a second. Send those spies to go rescue my child. Men and women, never forget that God is that shepherd who notices if one sheep is missing. And he will do whatever it takes to go get that sheep, even though he has 99 others. And then the text reminds us, almost humorous, the text reminds us, she's a prostitute. Rahab has to be like, really, guys, can we let that go? Can we stop with that? The text is showing us anyone at any time could have repented. The Israelites and the Canaanites, y'all, they didn't agree on much. This is one thing they would have agreed on, that Rahab had the least to offer God of anyone in this battle. James 2.13, it says this amazing thing. It's been ringing in my head all week. It says, for all who believe, whether you're a prince or a prostitute, everyone who believes, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That word triumphs, it means glories. It means boasts. 
And so the idea here is that when, when mercy and judgment seem to conflict, mercy is undefeated. Mercy wins every time. Just as the people shouted and they blew their victory trumpets against the walls, mercy shouts and boasts over judgment. You may remember Rahab, she, she hung the scarlet cord over her window. The scarlet cord, it was a reminder of the Passover, the Passover that they celebrated just the previous chapter in chapter 5, where the blood of an innocent lamb would cause judgment to pass over them, and mercy would triumph over judgment. And what's true of Rahab is also true for the Israelites. They carry around that ark, and on that ark, the, there's a lid, and that lid is called the mercy seat. Inside that ark is the law, the law that every Israelite broke every day. But once a year, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood of a perfect lamb. And that blood would cover over their sin. And that's the way mercy could triumph over judgment. And Paul calls Jesus our mercy seat. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus come and he pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus, when he sat with his disciples right before he went to the cross, he sat down and he told them his battle plan. And they said, that's the dumbest battle plan since Jericho. He said, I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be crucified for your sins. But on three days, I'm going to rise again. And when I rise again, you will know mercy triumphs over judgment. You will know you are fighting from a victory that I won for you. See, I know there's a lot of ites in Joshua. There's Canaanites, termites, Israelites, whatever. There's really only two types of people, two types. There's those who fight for their own victory, and all of them face judgment. The second is those who fight from the victory achieved by the sacrifice of another, and for them, mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, I think it's natural. It's natural to read the story, the story of Jericho, and, and we want to find ourselves in the story. And so we think, you know what? I'm Joshua. And, and my, the, my, the walls, those are my impossible circumstances, you know. They're, they're my marriage or my finances or some political or social issue or a personal sin or a personal struggle. In fact, some of you probably already planned that when this sermon's over, you're going to go start walking circles around your spouse so God will fix them. Don't do that. You aren't Joshua. Jesus is Joshua. You want to find yourself in the story? Here's who we are. We're either the Canaanites or we're Rahab. That's who we are. And the walls, they're not some external circumstances. The walls are internal. It's the walls of separation we put between us and God with our sin. But you know what? Something happened to every Christian in here, every believer in here. The presence of God started circling their hearts and the walls that they had put up in their hearts. Even in the midst of sin and shame, even in the midst of selfishness and unbelief, sometimes even in the midst of anger at God. And the presence and mercy of God caused those walls to crumble. One of my favorite conversion stories has always been Augustine's. He, he writes, burning, burning, I came to Carthage. And y'all, he wasn't talking about the weather, okay? It's a promiscuous guy is what he's talking about. And he was struggling. He was, 
God was circling his heart, but he wasn't willing to give up his way of life yet. And so he even prayed this prayer that I know most of us can identify with. He said, God, give me chastity, but not yet. He's in the garden one day, distraught, disillusioned, because he's experienced the best the world has had to offer, and it leaves him empty. And then as he's walking through this garden, he hears some children singing a song, and they're singing, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. And he looks down, and what do you know? He sees a Bible. He picks that Bible up, and he opens it up, and it turns to Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He says, suddenly he felt himself flooded with light. He realized his only hope was to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in his flesh could save him or satisfy him. And he later wrote about his conversion experience. It's actually a prayer. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. He's saying, I found my Sabbath by putting on Jesus. You know, the same thing happened to me. I was a kid from a family who wasn't following the Lord. I was confused. I doubted. I was uncertain. But through a church and through some Sunday school teachers, God started circling my heart. He somehow made me believe that he loved me, that he created me, that he had made a way to have a relationship with me. And he made the walls of my heart crumble and mercy triumphed over judgment for a young boy from North Louisiana. You know, verse 20, where it says the walls fall down. We've seen that word before. That word is nafal. It's the same word used for Joshua at the end of chapter 5 when it says he fell down and worshiped the God who stood before him. It's given us our two options, guys. You can fight for your own victory. You can try to be a good person. You can try to make up for the bad stuff. You can try to make it work the best you can, all while putting walls up between you and God. But that wall will fall down in judgment one day. Or you can fall down in worship, just like Joshua did. You can say, I claim the blood of Christ, and I am fighting from the victory that he accomplished for me. And when you do that, mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're going to take a minute to close service and do our so what. So I'm going to ask Adam to come on back up. Adam, are you in here? There he is. All right. I was looking in the wrong direction. Come on up, Adam. And I want us to all just take a, give you about a minute, a minute and a half to do some business with God. Think about how God's word applies to you, not just today, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, as you walk out those doors. You know, I caught myself thinking, hey, even if you've been a believer for decades, when was the last time you just fell down and worshiped God for his salvation in your life? You know what? Or maybe there's someone in here and, yeah, man, there's, you know God is speaking to you. There is someone somewhere in your life, you're trying to do it your way instead of God's way. What would it look like to, to put feet to your faith in that situation and do it God's way? You know what, or, or maybe you're here and you can feel God circling the walls of your heart. The walls that you've put up between you and him. And he's telling you, it is true. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Just in these next few moments, you can tell him, maybe for the first time, you can tell him, I believe. You know what? And if that's you and you tell him that you believe after the service, we'd love for you to tell us that you believe. We want to celebrate with you. So let's take a moment and do our so what.
Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.